Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the Crow warrior and leader known as Biawachechish, or Woman Chief. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay my respects to their elders past and present. They're the custodians of an oral tradition far older than this podcast. I have a few content warnings before we get started on this episode. We're going to be talking about war, including the taking of prisoners and death in war, though not in any graphic detail. We're also going to be discussing historical and modern sexism, queerphobia, and racism against Native people in America. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to hear, feel free to skip this episode and check out our other episodes. Before we begin, I want to make a couple of notes about names and the names we're going to be using in this episode. It's common practice when speaking English to translate the literal meanings of indigenous American names into their English equivalents. So Biawachechus is often referred to as woman chief, and that's the literal translation of her name. I tried to do some research into this practice of translating Native American names and to read some indigenous people's opinions about it. I wasn't able to find very much at all. It was something that was quite difficult to Google, partly because, you know, if you look up anything about, like, Native American names, you just get a bunch of lists of how to give your baby a cute Native name. Oh, which, no. Uh, yeah, it was oh, a bad no. time. I wandered onto that bad corner of the internet for a while. I did discover while I was there that you can pay a baby name consultant, like, a hundred bucks an hour to help you name your baby. So uh, How many hours does it take to name a baby? <laughs> Like, that sounds like a pretty good job, frankly. Yeah, if you're ever short of cash, consider that. Anyway, so I did try to do some research on that, and I also reached out to the Crow Language Consortium, who work to preserve and educate people about the Crow language. Unfortunately, I didn't hear back from them, and I generally wasn't able to find an answer to my question, which was, is it more appropriate for me as an English speaker to say woman chief, because that conveys the meaning of the name, or to say Biawachechish, which is what she would have been called in her community during her life. I understand you also had some trouble finding pronunciation. Yeah, so the Crow Language Consortium actually has put a Crow dictionary online which has little clips of Crow people saying all these words, which is very good. Mm-hmm. But since Biawachechish is a name, it's a proper noun, so it's not in there. So I can find out how to say woman, which is beer. I can find out how to say the word for chief, which is but I couldn't find exactly how they would sound combined and like which syllable you would stress. So I'm doing my best. If you are a Crow person or a person who speaks Crow language listening and I'm mangling this name, I'm very sorry. So the two main reasons that I came across for translating names was firstly that the meaning of many Indigenous American names is more culturally important than the literal meaning of English speaking people's names. So whereas it doesn't actually matter to me what my name means and people who know me may not know what my name means. In crow culture, your name is going to be a word that people will recognize and immediately know what it means. And it may have been given to you because it says something about you. So mm. Biwa Chechish, for example, wasn't named Biwa Chechish at birth. She was obviously given this name because it describes something about her, that she was a woman and a chief. Mm. Okay. So that's one reason. And then the second reason that Native American names often translated is simply because English-speaking people found it easier. They found it easier Mm. to say. They found it easier to write down for bureaucracies. They found it easier to be consistent about how they said and wrote English words than the original indigenous words. So that's basically just, you know, a racist English-speaking perspective. It was easier than getting their heads around an unfamiliar thing. Mm. So... Based on that information and knowing, for example, that there is a Crow group actively working to preserve Crow language, it didn't make sense to me to translate Biawachechish's name into English when I would be mostly doing it because it would be easier for me. And I can just tell you that it means woman chief. And And we know that now. You know that now. So we've served the purpose of like acknowledging that this name has a literal meaning that's Mm. important. Mm. So for that reason... I've decided to call Biawachechish by her crow name, Biawachechish, throughout the episode. And where I was able to find the crow names of other people we'll talk about, I've used them as well. 
sometimes I've used English translations because I couldn't find what their name actually was in Crow. Mm-hmm. So a question, when the group of people is called Crow, mm-hmm. is that a translation? Is that the animal in English or do they just happen to sound the same? No, that is the animal in English. So in their own language, they're called Apsaroge. And the reason that I said Crow is because on most of the crow websites I could find, like the crow language consortium and that kind of thing, they do refer to themselves as crow. Okay. Apsaroge doesn't mean specifically crow, but it means the children of the large beaked bird. And that was interpreted by English speakers when they arrived in America as specifically referring to a crow. But maybe we don't know and it was a pelican? Yeah, we don't specifically know what bird that refers to. Okay. But crow is the name that's generally used. Okay. By those people when speaking about themselves in English today, they do use Absaroge as well. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say about names, which I've already kind of alluded to, is that Crow people traditionally have several names throughout their lives, which are often given to them to mark certain events or, you know, certain things they've done or commemorate various things. Biawichetish wasn't called Biawichetish when she was born, but we don't know what other names she may have gone by throughout her life. So Biawichetish is the only name we have to refer to her by. Do the old names typically stop being used? Like when they get a new name because of some event? I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. Okay. I don't know. I think that information is out there and I did, you know, some reading about crow names, but I didn't do that much reading, mostly because I only had one name to use for anyway. Yeah, no, that makes yeah. sense, yeah. So the last thing I want to say before we get into talking about Biawachichish's life properly is just a little comment about sources. Our major source on Biawachichish's life, so our major primary source, is a man named Edwin Denig, who was a fur trader of European descent who lived with the Crow people for quite a while during Biawachichish's life and knew her for about 10 or 12 years. I don't remember what you said already, but when are we? Biawachichish was born in the first decade of the 1800s. Okay, cool. And Denig lived with the Crow people around, I believe, the 1830s, 40s, 50s. Okay. I don't know the exact dates. So Denig wrote several pieces about Crow culture, which are quite valuable historical sources, but also they're obviously very flawed and they're seen through his lens as a white American person. Did he just meet with the Crow people by chance and they were like, we're traveling the same way, let's go together, and then they became friends? Like, how did this happen? I don't know the details of his biography. Like, he was a fur trader and, like, you know, Crow people were also involved in that trade, so I think it was, you know, partly that that was his job and this is what he was doing at the time. Yeah, I don't actually know that many details about him as a person overall. Okay. So, Denig writes about Biawachichish very positively as an individual, but I do want to mention that his descriptions of crow women in general are very misogynistic, very racist, and very dehumanizing. Uh-huh. I didn't actually write down quotes from them because I didn't want to read them out loud because they were just pretty awful. Yikes, okay. So, I think it's just worth keeping in mind as we talk about Biawachichish and we use Denig as a source that he... Definitely has a very racist attitude towards the Crow people and a very misogynistic attitude towards women. And so he's definitely kind of seeing Biawachichish as an exception Yeah, his general views on women as lesser people. Yeah, yeah. His general view on, like, Indigenous people and women as lesser people, like Biawachichish is an outlier, I guess, to him. Mm-hmm. But yeah, unfortunately... As Lakota anthropologist Beatrice Medicine has noted, we often don't have any better sources on Indigenous life in the first half of the 19th century than these kind of, you know, white traders or white anthropologists or various white people who came in contact with Indigenous groups. Mm. And particularly when it comes to the experiences of women, because most of these sources are written by men, Denig being, you know, a pretty standard example Women are either misinterpreted, misunderstood, or just overlooked and not really talked about. So it's very hard to know what the lives of women actually would have looked like. So that's all my caveats and introductions. Now it's time for geography. Okay. Where's the Crow Nation? (laughs) Yeah. Where's the Crow Nation? We've talked about the middle. Yeah. So the Crow people are from what is basically central northern USA, Mm -hmm. so around what's now the state of Montana. And that's the northern part of what's called the Great Plains Mm -hmm. of North America. So that stretches all the way down from like Canada all the way down through the middle of the USA and into the top of Mexico. Okay. And there's a variety of Native American groups that 
lived in that area in the 1800s and many of them still live there today. The two main ones that are important to us are the Crow people who I've mentioned and the Grovant people who in their own language are called the Aanin people. And so both those peoples live semi-nomadic lifestyles on the Great Plains, generally focused around hunting buffalo. So Biwa Chechish wasn't actually born Crow. She was born into the Grovant or Aanin people in, as I mentioned before, the first decade of the 1800s. We don't know very much about the first 10 or so years of her life or about her birth family. What kind of word is Grovant? Where did that come from? <laughs> it's French. Uh, okay. So it's Gros, G-R-O-S, which means big, and Ventre, V-E-N-T-R-E, which means belly. Oh. And yeah, say, say that again in French. Ventre. <laughs> My French isn't very good. <laughs> good. That's all. I just wanted that. Okay. Um, so big belly for why? So the reason is, we talked about this in our episode on Oshchish, who's another crow person, so you might remember it, but there's a sign language called plain sign language, mm-hmm. which was used as the kind of lingua franca mm-hmm. of communication between a lot of people on the Great Plains, especially around this time. And so each different group would have a plain sign language name. The Grovant people, also known as the Falls people, referring to waterfalls near when they lived. I can't remember exactly what waterfall that is. And so the sign language was sort of like your hands going along a river and down a waterfall. So it looks like as you curve your hands over what would be the top of the waterfall, it also looks like you're miming, having a large stomach. It kind of might be like when you mime like a pregnant stomach, yeah. Yeah, and so when white people turned up in this area and saw that sign, these French explorers misunderstood the sign and took it to mean that these people were called Big Belly rather than Waterfall. Okay. All right. Okay. (laughs) And that's a good example of how quickly information gets misinterpreted when European explorers come. Yeah. Yeah. And then Grovant is obviously like the Americanized version of the French word. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so at the time that Biawachechich was born, there was a lot of conflict between the various indigenous groups that lived in the area. We don't have time to go into specifically who was Mm -hmm. fighting with who and what the various, you know, political and economic reasons behind it all were throughout this episode. But for the purposes of what we're talking about, there was conflict in particular between the Grovant and the Crow people. And so when she was about 10, Biawachechich was taken captive by a Crow war party. It was quite a normal crow practice for women and children who were captured in war to be assimilated into crow society. And so Biawa Chechich was adopted into a crow family, raised as a crow child, and lived as a crow woman for the rest of her life. Was that normal practice in general, like in other groups as well? I don't know. I only know about it in a crow context because that's the context that, you know, it happened to Biawa Chechich. I'm not sure. Okay. Actually, just to go back a minute, you mentioned that Oshtish... Another person we've done an episode on was also Crow. That was a long time ago. When was Oshtish in relation to this episode? So, Biwachesh was born in the early 1800s. Mm. Oshtish was born around 1854. Okay. Coincidentally, that's when Biwachesh died. So, they never actually knew each other. Okay. Okay. But, yeah, they are from the same group. Mm-hmm. And how, like, big a group are we talking? Like, would they have known each other if they had overlapped in lifespan um, or... It's hard to say. I did look at some, like, estimates of population numbers, and they generally estimate the population as the number of lodges rather than the number of people. So, like, a family would live together in a lodge. Like, Denig talks, I think, about how many lodges there were, and he says, oh, there used to be 800 lodges, but now there's only about 400 lodges. But I'm not being told how many people lived in a lodge. But I guess that gives us a sense that it's in the thousands, not in the tens. You yeah. Know? Yeah. 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 So, like, maybe they would have been aware of each other had they lived at the same time, but yeah. they didn't. Oshchish was quite well known, right? They were doing, like, craft work that people lost their minds over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they were like making lodges in fact. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, Oshchish was quite well known. Mm-hmm. And, like, Beer Chechish was also quite well known. So okay. I would say Oshchish would have heard of Beer with That's <laughs> okay. pretty cool. Anyway. Yeah, so Beer with is 10 and she now lives with the Crow people. Crow children's activities and lives were very segregated depending on their gender. Male children learned skills focused around riding horses and hunting buffalo. Female children learned skills around cooking, dressing and tanning buffalo skins and making clothes and jewellery. As you will know from our episode on Oshtish, if you've heard that, there were also Bate children 
who were assigned male at birth, but may learn traditional female activities. So Bate is a crow gender that encompasses some kind of more feminine social traits as well as perfectly Bate social traits. Mm. And if you are curious about that, you can listen to our episode on Oshchish to learn more. So their like activities and their learning was segregated, but were kids of different genders like playing together, spending time together? Yeah, I think so. It's just that they were like, you know, expected to be on very different paths in life. Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But it's not like they were officially like couldn't talk to each mm-hmm. other. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. From a young age, Denig tells us that Beowachetish showed an interest in traditionally masculine rather than traditionally feminine activities, and that her adoptive father encouraged her in these activities. Denig suggests that her father might have encouraged her because he either had no sons or any sons he did had had died or been captured in war. We don't actually have any specific reference to whether these sons existed, and I think that's just speculation by Denig, who wants to try and find an explanation for why Beowachechish's masculine interests would have been accepted. Yeah, that sounds plausible. Yeah, but Beowachechish was apparently very talented in these pursuits. Denig describes her as taller and stronger than most women and, quote, equal if not superior to any of the men in hunting both on horseback and foot. Good for her. And he even recounts about how on several occasions he killed full-grown grizzly bears alone, which is <laughs> what? just apparently... She literally just fought a bear. <laughs> Multiple times. Yeah, bears. <laughs> Excuse you. I don't know, Putin could never. <laughs> yeah, the account of her life that Denny gives is pretty sparse. Like, it's not like he sat down and wrote a biography of her. It's just that, you know, she comes up in other things he's written. So it is kind of like, yeah, and she, she killed grizzly bears by herself. And you're like, (laughs) excuse me, Edwin. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) So after the death of her adoptive parents, Beowachetish became the head of her household, according to Denig, quote, performing the double duty of both father and mother to her adoptive siblings. So Beowachetish had an adoptive father, but not an adoptive mother? I think that her adoptive mother died, like, quite early on. Okay. Yeah. Her father definitely died after her mother did. So she did have an adoptive mother, but we don't really know much about her. Okay. I mean, we don't know much about her father either, to be honest. Definitely <laughs> existed. We know that yeah. he encouraged her in her ambition to fight grizzly bears. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, there was a lot of conflict between the various groups living on the Great Plains during the 1700s and 1800s. So during Beowachetish's life, one of the main enemies of the Crow was the Blackfeet Confederacy. So that was a collective of several nations. They were sometimes allied with the Grovant, not always. I very much like the fact that the word that they've chosen to use here is confederacy, because I feel like there's so often a tendency to use words that kind of primitivize mm. like indigenous societies, and confederacy has this very kind of like modern, sophisticated political sound to it in a way. To yeah. Me. Like it sounds much more sophisticated than a lot of the words you hear used. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Like, like I know you see sometimes people will write articles, for example, about Europe where they'll deliberately use the kind of yeah. language yeah. that's fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like when we do that about Catholics, when we write about them, how people write about, like, indigenous cultures and horror movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that's great. It's very funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we first hear of Beowachetish's involvement in the fighting between Crow and the Blackfeet when she was part of a small Crow camp near a white trading port. So the Crow were allied with the United States and did trade with them a lot, hence Denig. The camp was attacked by Blackfeet and several Crow people were killed while others fled inside the fort. The Blackfeet then indicated that they wanted someone to come out and talk with them. Amongst both the white and Crow people inside, Beowachetish was the only one who was willing to venture out. The invitation to talk was obviously not in good faith. Beowachetish was fired on as she came towards the Blackfeet. She fired back with a gun and then with a bow and arrow, killing several Blackfeet before retreating back into the fort. I'm glad that she came prepared. With multiple weapons, not just one. So Beowachetish's act of bravery in riding out to meet the Blackfeet when no one else was willing to and in returning unharmed was hailed by those inside the fort and she became quite well known among the Crow and the subject of several Crow songs. Do we know anything about these songs anymore? Not that I came across, no. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't find any crow sources about her that didn't use the information that came from Denig. 
Mm. Okay. Yeah. So if there is any crow like oral tradition about her, I'm not aware of it, unfortunately. Okay. So the following year, Biwa Chechish gathered a group of young men under her leadership to make guerrilla raids against the Blackfeet. In their first raid, they stole 70 horses from a Blackfoot camp under cover of darkness. I can't believe that they stole 70 horses. <laughs> like, that's not a subtle thing to do. <laughs> yeah, that's an insane number of horses to steal. I don't know how many of them there were. Yeah. Like, I think they were described as, like, a small group, but, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I feel like I imagined a guerrilla resistance force doing, like, smaller acts than that. No, they just stole so many horses. Yeah. So, Crow Chief and historian Joe Medicine Crow has written books about, like, the history and culture of Crow people, and he kind of talks about this kind of raiding and warfare and what place it had in Crow culture. And he explains that it was less as a way for, like, the Crow nation to gain territory or property or even for individuals to gain territory or property, although, obviously, you know, 70 horses is a lot of (laughs) horses, and that's very valuable. (laughs) Yeah. And they would have gotten rich off this. But he explains that it was seen as more of, a sport for young men and a way for them to kind of gain renown and prestige. Okay. And in particular, prestige came with what's called counting coup. So the way you count coup is by touching an enemy soldier and getting away unharmed. And that enemy can be alive or dead, but you basically have to touch them and get away. So it's like a violent and adult game of tag. (laughs) I guess you could see it that way. Yeah. Like it's not necessarily about how many people you killed or how much you took, Mm. but it's about like showing your bravery Mm. by touching someone and getting away unharmed. Mm. Were the death tolls high from these kind of conflicts or Um, was it really just kind of a quite dangerous sport? Yeah. Was there any kind of like understanding between cultures that you wouldn't react to this the way you'd react to like, I don't know, like a real band of adults coming to kill you all or whatever. The way that Joe Madison Crow talks about it, it does sound quite like, you know, oh yeah, the young men are just going to go out and do that for fun. But like at the same time, like we do know, like I mentioned that Biwa Chechish's adoptive father died. He was killed. Biwa Chechish was taken away from her family and never went back. Like several people were killed in that first raid that I mentioned that Biwa Chechish was first involved in. Yeah. Where she rode out to meet the Blackfeet. So, like, people were definitely, like, having their lives really, like... Radically overturned. Yeah. Yeah. Or dying. Yeah. So, it's not like it's just like, oh, yeah, this is a fun thing that sometimes gets a bit too violent. Like, it was war in which people died. Mm. But I guess it was just also seen to be about the, like prestige of these young men so yeah in this second raid that she was involved in where Biwa Chechish stole 70 horses or you know was involved in stealing 70 horses (laughs) like a western where somebody's like straddling two horses at once (laughs) we're just bouncing between 70 (laughs) like those dog walkers that walk like 50 dogs at once yeah yeah yeah, exactly exactly yeah Yeah, so in this second raid Biwa Chechish countered coup twice killing one blackfoot warrior and striking another and taking his gun and getting away unharmed nice I mean I don't know war (laughs) good for her yep and she went on to lead many more successful attacks against the Blackfeet. As her military success increased, Biwa Chechish's social standing also increased, and she began to be invited to attend councils of chiefs. Denning notes that she had a prominent social position, not just for a woman, but for any Crow individual, describing her as, quote, elevated to a point of honour and respect not often reached by male warriors. So Crow society was organised into two main bands, the River Crow and the Mountain Crow. And there's a third smaller band as well. And while we don't know which band Biwa Chechish belonged to, Denig tells us that amongst her band, she was recognized as the third highest chief. And he adds that it was only her lack of familial connection since she was adopted rather than born crow that prevented her reaching an even higher status. So should we understand the fact that she wasn't born into this or her gender to be more of an issue? So Denig says it's the fact that she wasn't born into this and he doesn't actually talk about like any backlash from crow people about her behavior because of her gender. Okay. I guess because I assume like because her name translates to woman chief. Yeah. And it's kind of notable that she is a woman chief. Is that just an assumption or is that? No, no. Okay. You're correct. Like there have been other women who had similar roles in Crow society, but it's definitely not the norm. Okay. This kind of social status of like being a chief and having that kind of political 
high stance in society is something generally gained through warfare. Mm -hmm. And these, like, war parties that we talked about are generally men. Yeah. So, like, yeah, it's definitely unusual that she is a woman and a chief and a woman and a warrior. It's not unheard of. But, yeah, Danig, who is unfortunately, like, our only real primary source, just kind of... yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There is another man who's called Kurtz, who is just kind of like, you know, a second Danig who didn't write as much down. (laughs) That's probably a bit rude to Kurtz. Less prolific Danig. Wow. Good for you, bro. (laughs) But, yeah, like, Danig is not our only source, but uh, there's nothing in that other source that we don't really get from Danig. Okay. Yeah, and he doesn't really talk about any kind of backlash. Okay from her community about Mm. her doing this as a woman, even though it is unusual. So we mentioned that children are kind of funneled into like two or three specific gendered paths. How remarkable was it for a like young woman to be like, no, I will also go on these raiding parties and also do that kind of thing, camp coup, steal gun, fight grizzly bear. So obviously it's difficult to put like numbers on that kind of thing. But we definitely do have, like, specific names of other women who did Mm. similar things. So the library at Little Bighorn College, which is on the Crow Reservation today, provides us a list of Crow leaders, which, you know, it's quite a long list, but it does include three women who joined war parties and were seen as leaders. So Biwa Chechich is one. And then there's Akeka Hush, which means comes towards the near bank, who would have been a contemporary of Biwa Chechich. Oh, cool. And another woman called Biliche Helelash, or Among the Willows, who was born about 30 years later, so in the 1830s. Okay. So is this something that, like, you know, occasionally a woman was just kind of exceptional enough that she entered this role, and because of their, like, exceptional, you know, like, she's fighting grizzly bears. And yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's and like. That's why that's acceptable, but, like, just most women wouldn't be able to fight grizzly bears. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my understanding of what's happening. Like, and, like, Danig tells us that Biwa Chetish was, like, exceptional, not just for a woman, but just exceptional. Mm-hmm. Like, she's a better hunter and a better shot and so forth than a lot of men, yeah. as well as a lot of women. And, like, at that point, it's just like, all right, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Beatrice Madison, who I mentioned before, who's a Lakota woman, but kind of writes about this kind of stuff, and Lakota also a Plains group. And also our friend Will Roscoe, who are... <laughs> oh, he, he is. Waiting for this, but- if you're a regular listener, you will have heard of Will Roscoe. He's a white scholar who writes a lot about gender and sexuality with varying degrees of success. success. <laughs> <laughs> Pops up everywhere all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So both medicine and Roscoe talk about how we have this tendency, partially because of lack of sources, to kind of view Indigenous women as living really undifferentiated lives, like Mm -hmm. view every woman as just sitting at home in her lodge looking after her children and, you know, cleaning buffalo skins for sale. Mm. Whereas with men, we might talk more about this one was a chief and a really great diplomat and this one was a really great warrior and this one was a medicine man and, you know, like talk more about them as individuals Mm -hmm. and women just like, and then there are all those women over there looking after babies and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so they talk about how in reality there would have been most likely a much greater differentiation of Mm. things that women did. Yeah. And that it was socially acceptable for them to do. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So as Biwa Chechish grew increasingly wealthy from the buffalo she very successfully hunted and the many horses she captured during raids, Denig tells us that, quote, With the view of turning her buffalo hides to some account by dressing them and fitting them for trading purposes, she took to herself a wife. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You forgot we were in a queen. Well, uh, yeah, Denig really talks about it like a business partner. And before I talk more about her marriage, I will mention that um, polygamy was quite normal among Crow people at this time, and Beowa Chechish did go on to marry three more women. Mm. So she has four wives. So, if she'd had, like, five husbands, would that have been normal? No. So, what... that way? No. What is the norm is for a man to marry multiple women. So, in this case, she's basically taking on what would generally more often be a man's role. Okay. I assume you have more to say about that. (laughs) Yes. So, we're going to... I'll let you go then. Talk about her wives. (laughs) How much do we know about these wives? Nothing. Well, that sucks. Okay. Yeah. Not a single fact. I've told you every fact I know about these women as individuals. Okay. Oh. Sorry. They tanned some buffalo skins. They did tan some buffalo skins. They were married to Biwa Chechish. 
That's it. Four of them. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, the way Denig talks about these marriages, as I just said then, definitely positions Beowichajish as in a masculine role and her wives as in a feminine role. So he says, quote, strange country this, where women turn men and mate with their own sex, referring to Beowichajish. I don't know how mate with was intended when Denig said it, but that definitely sounds like had sex with to me. <laughs> well, yeah. So the way Denig talks about Beowichajish's relationship with these women is, as you said, Irene, like very practical economic kind of relationship like business partners so he really basically says oh look she's got a lot of buffalo skins as who's gonna tan these buffalo skins yeah better get her a wife oh she's got too many buffalo skins better get a couple more like that's really the way denig talks about it and he describes them as in reality servants rather than wives so he really describes them as people who are just like in her house to do work for her basically okay i presume to be honest that for a man to have wives in his house doing a bunch of, like, household labor for him was not uncommon in this society. It just did not strike Danig as comment-worthy because he was a man. Is, is that a different relationship than a man is having with his wives? Well, can I ask it? Is there marriage? Yes. Okay. At least, you know, Danig does tell us about the various steps that a man would normally go through to marry a woman in crow society. Okay. And he does give that a much more romantic bent than he does when he talks about Beowichajish marrying. So, um, But we can assume maybe that if he did not consider Beowichajish to be married to these people, he might just say, well, she had her house with her little buffalo tanning workshop in there. <laughs> <laughs> All her little employees, you know? Yeah, like he definitely describes them as her wives. There's not as far as I could tell, and, you know, once again, I'm relying a lot on Denig, a specific, like, moment the way there is in our culture where you're married to someone now like you know we sign a specific legal document and have a specific ceremony and now we're married whereas there doesn't seem to be that like specific line mm. as far as i'm aware okay. but i will talk a little bit about what Denig says about how men marry women okay just so we have an idea Okay. So Denig talks about crow courtship and he begins by talking about how a young man will generally try and get a young woman to run away with him before trying to, you know, marry her. In a more, like, socially accepted sense? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's like you try and elope first, <laughs> just as, like, a joke? <laughs> well, I think you try and elope first to kind of prove her commitment to you and, like... Like, is the woman meant to be like, all right, let's do it? Or is it just yeah. you're meant to, like, give it a go and then it doesn't work and then you, like, do it properly? From the way Danny explains that, like, men will generally give that a go, it might work or it might not, okay. and then they might approach her family and instead okay. say, hey, I want to marry her if that doesn't work. Okay. Yeah. And if they do elope and then they come back? Are they, like, married now? If they do elope and then they come back, then he'll go to her family and be like, look, clearly we're, like, Already basically married, married so. now, you know, and, like, he would offer gifts to her family. Okay. And then they would be married. Okay. So you build some kind of, like, reciprocal relationship with a woman and or her family. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're married. And you yeah. do that, like, three more times. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Like, yeah. not every yeah, crow sure. man had multiple wives. Some had one wife. That's some had several wives. not that wild so- gender imbalance. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> That's true. I never thought about yeah. <laughs> yeah, so when Denig describes how a man would first, like, go and try to woo a woman and get her to run away with him, he says that the man would come to seek the woman's consent to do this and, quote, recite to her his tale of love. So he definitely implies, you know, a marriage here based not just on economic reasons, but one that's kind of based on some kind of romance. Mm-hmm. And then he also, moving on a bit from marriage, talks about crow culture as being very open and free with regard to female sexuality, saying, quote, the women, whether married or not, appear to be perfectly unaware that virtue or chastity has any existence even in the imagination. All right. Which, you know, <laughs> is a, definitely a white man talking about indigenous sexuality there. But the point I wanted to make is that he's very willing to acknowledge that there's romance in crow marriage, and he's very willing to acknowledge that, you know, crow women are quite open about their sexuality, but as soon as we get to talking about two women being married, all that's off the table, and now it's just yeah. economic. I don't know. It feels to me in that case that if he could avoid it, he would not have said wife. I mean, surely he could have avoided it. Yeah, like he mm. could have avoided it. Mm. He could have just said, you know, three women came to live with her to help her tan buffalo hides because she didn't want to. Yeah, I guess so. Which I guess, like, is 
some concrete indication that they did something like what men do with yeah that you've just described that's him. what i mean like he's yeah. yeah undermining his own yeah arguments surely like yeah. why are they her wives jim i don't know the <laughs> edwin edwin <laughs> ted teddy <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of what I meant. Like, he Mm. sort of undermines himself by saying, this is what marriage is, and then being like, oh, except she had wives, but that was just business. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, like, he also, like, when he talks about the fact that she didn't marry men, rather than being like, hey, maybe, you know, she was interested in women or she wanted to have a masculine rather than feminine social role here, he says, quote, her habits did not suit their taste. They certainly rather feared than loved her as a conjugal companion. So he basically just says men didn't want to marry her. Okay. And that's all he tells us about. I don't know. Maybe she was into one of her four wives. (laughs) (laughs) So like, what is your reading of what this relationship was? So, I mean, it's very hard to say because we have so little information. Yeah that doesn't come from Denig. Mm. So I don't think I can, you know, definitely say, hey, sure. these were romantic and sexual relationships that Bioche just had with these women. But, yeah, I think... You don't want to put all of that off the table yeah. automatically. Just because, because that's what Denig said. You're, yeah. You're not a 19th century white man. Yeah, because, you know, I think that Denig didn't engage with it because Denig didn't want to think about women being in relationships with women. Yeah. So... Is this something that we have evidence for other women doing in Crow society or in any other, like, Plains community? There are in other Plains communities. We do, for example, have, like, dictionaries that were written around this time Mm -hmm. by white people that will mention, you know, a word for lesbianism, not for Crow people. Okay. When Um, you say lesbianism... What do you mean? Well, unfortunately, like, the dictionaries don't tell They just say that. lesbianism. They're just like, yep, this is, you know, okay. I can't remember the exact right. example, but that kind of thing. So some kind of socially recognized romantic and or sexual role between women of some sort. Yeah. Okay, unfortunately, cool. I don't know of any crow examples of okay. these kind of relationships between women except for Biochechish. With regard to lesbianism in, like, Plains Languages dictionaries, are you able to tell us whether they are talking about lesbianism as, like, a sex act or lesbianism as, like, a woman who no, I prefers don't know. other women? I'm not um, sure. Okay. The one I'm thinking of, like, there was a dictionary and in one, like, additional draft of that dictionary, there was a handwritten note in the margin that added this word in. Oh, oh, so interesting. how did it win? Like, I think by the person who oh, wrote the dictionary okay, in a okay. draft or something. Okay. But you know, mm. it wasn't published in the dictionary. Oh. Okay, and I guess the other question to ask as well is like, Denig has positioned this as her like playing this masculine mm. role. Is that do you think a fair understanding of this? Like, has she taken on a male role within society? As far as I understand it, I would say yes. Like, what we know about crow marriage at this time is that, you know, generally a man would marry one or more women. Yeah. And she has married one or more women. Generally, men would... Mm. Lead war parties. Lead war parties. Generally, men would be chiefs. Generally, men would hunt buffalo. Like, all the things that we know that she did are things that were generally done by men. So, yes. And so, like... You know, we read that quote about men not wanting to marry her because, you know, they were, like, afraid of her because she was too muscly or whatever. (laughs) Um, Do you think – and, like, I realise that you're not going to have an answer to this, but, like, you know, is it fair to speculate or do you think this is falling into, like, Denny's kind of view of the world that she would have not been considered an appropriate wife by men at the time because she was functionally, like, socially a man? Or no. So there are definitely other women who did some of these roles and did marry men. So one of those, like, women who fought in war, who I mentioned before, I believe was Ake Kahush, was married to a man and they, like, fought in war parties together. Oh, that's pretty cool. So, like, it definitely was possible for women to do some of these kind of things and also marry men. Mm -hmm. Okay. It doesn't seem to be, from what I can tell, that by choosing to pursue some traditionally masculine activities she's cut herself off from mm. any possibility of pursuing okay. traditionally feminine activities it seems to be that you know yeah. this is what she's okay. chosen to do with her life that's good to know like yeah i think that's valuable context yeah yeah right. disappointingly in the scholarship i generally found that people took denig's assessment 
of Beowitz's relationship with her wives at face value and just, you know, kind of said, for economic reasons, she married several women. Sabina Lang, who's a German-American scholar who's written about, like, Native American gender and sexuality, literally just quotes Denig. And then moves on. And then moves on. That's wild. Which is disappointing. Yeah, so Denig's unwillingness to engage with the idea of women having relationships with each other in ways that might be romantic or sexual has really just carried over almost, like, thoughtlessly, I think, mm. into the scholarship where people just haven't really thought and talked about it as much as we might like. Do people just assume that he knew everything about crow culture because he lived with them for so long? Not necessarily. Like, these are definitely, you know, scholars who might acknowledge that Denig is a flawed source when they bring him up for the first time and so forth. But I think it's almost less just, like, accepting that he knows everything he's talking about and more just, like, a general erasure of queer women. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that will shock us too much because we see the erasure of queer women on this podcast all the time. I think we do see this as well with history where, like, it's – if there's so little we know, people get really scared to kind of question any information because, like, what we do have very quickly just evaporates and then where are you? No, that's very true. That's very true. And to go back to Will Roscoe, (laughs) I don't think he specifically, like, delves into Beowitz's relationships, but he does point out in the introduction to his book, which he's written just kind of more generally looking about gender and sexuality in Native American cultures, he does point out that Indigenous women's sexuality, like even more than any other woman's sexuality, Indigenous women's sexuality, and especially their agency in their sexuality has been really, really erased. So they'll either be objectified for a white male gaze, or they'll just be seen as really, really desexualized, kind of idealized figures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which, even as far as if we take Denning at his word about how marriage works, we can Mm. see that that's not the case. Like, the man is obligated to persuade the woman to marry him. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's definitely, you know, female agency in that context. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, I also wanted to mention that Sabina Lang, just to give an example of the way in which people just can't think of female sexuality out of the context of men, describes Beowachechish as remaining unmarried. And then three paragraphs later talks about her marriage to these women. It's very strange that she would take Denig at face value when he says Beowachechish took wives for purely economic reasons, but also not take Denig at face value when he said Beowachechish took wives. Oh, no, she says Beowachechish took wives. She says Beowachechish married women. She just also says Beowachechish remained unmarried. And as far as I understand it, it's because mentally to her that wasn't real marriage. Thanks, Slang. I think it is worth, I guess, taking into account, and this doesn't necessarily imply a romantic or sexual relationship Mm. between Beowachechish and her wives, that given the context we've been given about how marriage worked, Beowachechish would have been obligated to persuade these women that this was a better deal than marrying a man. Yeah, and I think, you know, whatever Beowachechish may have said to or whatever her relationships with these women were, that is a side of the story that we're completely lacking. Like, we just do not know what these women thought, why they might have wanted to marry a woman instead of a man, if they saw that as really any different. Yeah. Um, Like, we just don't know. That's so frustrating. Yeah, it is. (laughs) I'm sure we asked this in the Oshtish episode. But while we're on this, what's the situation with Barté and marriage? I think Barté generally marry men from memory if they marry. Okay. So is the adoption of children fairly standard in this culture? Yeah, I understand it is. So, like, Beowachechish herself was adopted and, like, Denig also mentions her when she's, like, you know, hunting buffalo and, you know, trading their skins and so forth that she was supporting children in her care. Oh, cool. So she and her four wives had some children. Yeah, like, and we know that she, like, was seen as the head of her household after Uh her father died, so they may have been younger adoptive siblings, or they may have been, you know, other children who came into her care for various reasons. You might remember when we talked about Oshtish, that Oshtish did have a child. A younger Bate person, right? Yeah, Yeah. Oshtish did have a child who was, like, a younger Bate person who I think was a relative, but not a biological child, Mm -hmm. who did live with them. All right. So, yeah. So it's not like if you marry this woman, you don't get to have kids and that's terrible. It's like, well, maybe some different kids yeah. happen. So I wanted to talk a bit as well about how Beowachechish's community and, you know, 
scholars afterwards may have understood her gender. So as I said near the start of this episode, and as we've talked about a bit, there's a crow gender called Bate, which refers to people assigned male at birth who perform both traditionally female and specifically Bate social roles. So to talk a little bit more about Bate, from what information we have of 19th century crow understandings of gender, Bate seemed to have been seen as separate to but similar to women. So Pretty Shield, a crow woman who knew Oshtish, who we've mentioned, refers to Oshtish in an interview that Pretty Shield that she did with Frank Lindemann, who was an anthropologist and writer. Pretty Shield refers to Oshtish as a woman, a half-woman, neither a man nor a woman, and, you know, a variety of things that imply that Oshtish was either not a man or a woman or kind of a woman. It's worth mentioning that that interview with Frank Lindemann was done through an interpreter, but it was done through a crow interpreter. Okay. And, you know, while I don't necessarily trust everything that Frank Lindemann may have written down, he definitely does give Pretty Shield space to talk about gender in, like, a complicated and sometimes seemingly contradictory way. Like, I don't feel like Lindemann is putting his mm-hmm. understanding, understanding of gender. Yeah. He's not trying to enforce a binary gender onto a place where there is not a binary gender, for example. That's frankly impressive of him for the time period. Yeah. He was. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, Frank. So because of the existence of Barte gender, there's discussion in scholarship about whether Biochetish should be considered as being a complementary gender to Barte, so a person assigned female at birth, performing male social roles, rather than be considered as a woman. And so I will mention, first of all, that gender roles, such as that one I've just described, a person assigned female at birth, performing more male social roles, gender roles like that are much less common mm. among Indigenous American people and specifically among Plains peoples than Bate or, you know, Bate-like gender roles. I don't know if this is just being the impression that I have got after being in this podcast for several years, but are those kind of genders that are like assigned female at birth but inhabiting more masculine social roles just less common overall? Like it does. I feel like we've run into far fewer of them. It is interesting because we've definitely talked about way more like cultural roles that are people assigned male at birth who are like inhabit feminine roles or things like that. But we've talked about way more specifically trans masculine people. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to suspect that we just have like a not representative sample Mm. yeah yeah there's a couple of things i have to say that firstly if you're interested like will roscoe for all his foibles does do some very thorough tables of like these are all the genders that i know about (laughs) (laughs) that's incredible that's pretty great (laughs) he's like here's all the people sort of like vaguely geographically here's the genders they recognize Mm. here's the traits of those genders like i would totally have will roscoe on this podcast it would be like maybe a little awkward I would like, um, love to do it. Is he still alive? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, he's quite alive. like, he's an older man. He's yeah. born in the 50s, I think. So he's not, okay, so he's not that old. The other thing that I wanted to say is, and I'm afraid I can't remember which scholar said this, unfortunately, but one thing I read talking about how there's a lack of these transmasculine genders among Plains people was that it may be that people assigned male at birth are just generally more noticed by academics, you know. And as I said before, like these ethnographers or people like Denig, just Mm -hmm. these random white people writing about Indigenous people for whatever reason paid more attention to people assigned male at birth because they were assigned male at birth. Yeah, no, I guess hypothetically there's a possibility that the – like scope of what a woman could do within acceptable womanhood was broader than the scope of what a man could do. I mean, like that may be the case. Like, you know, we know of various crow women that I've mentioned who, yeah, you know, did various things like fighting wars and so forth. Whereas I don't know of examples of crow men who, you know, stayed home and looked after kids and sewed clothes yeah but you know that said i haven't done that much research into finding those crow men if they existed but perhaps you know if a man wanted to do that people would have gone oh, well, oh you're that's a Barté. Barté. yeah yeah mm. even if he didn't consider himself Barté, he considered himself a man you know mm. it's i mean yeah, i feel like we're getting into that kind of question though of like when is this just like some social roles that you're doing and when is this some kind of like identity yeah Yeah, that's a conversation we've had before like where do you draw that line of like what counts as a 
completely separate category within a culture anyway. Yeah. And, like, I guess with talking about crow gender in this time, like, we have some voices from crow people talking about this at the time, but not that much. Mm. So, like, we have Pretty Shield who says, you know, Oshtish was neither a man nor a woman. Yeah. But also says, you know, Oshtish was a woman. And then Oshtish was kind of a woman. I feel those three things go together to form a relatively clear picture of, like, what place Oshtish inhabits, you know. Yeah. And then I guess a comparison that I also wanted to bring up, which we talked about in our episode on Oshtish, is a woman that Pretty Shield talks about called the Other Magpie. I remember this woman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've been thinking about her all episode, hoping she would come back. Well, it's time to talk about the Other Magpie. So I guess the reason that I wanted to talk about the example of the Other Magpie is because we don't have any... Crow contemporaries of Beowichish recorded talking about Beowichish. Yeah. But the example that we do have is Pretty Shield talking about the other magpie who was also a woman who fought in war and, as far as we know, didn't marry a man. And this is maybe only like a few decades later than Beowichish? Yeah. So the other magpie was a contemporary of Oshtish. I don't know exactly how old she was. Okay. So, you know, she was probably born around the mid 1800s. Okay. Yeah. So. I guess the best we can do in saying, you know, how do we understand these identities is look at the way that the people in that community who knew them talked about them. Mm. And, you know, that may not draw any clear lines, but, you know. I guess it might just give us a sense of, like, the ways of conceptualizing that that might be available. Yeah. So to talk about the other magpie for a minute. So the other magpie was a woman who Pretty Shield talks about as somebody who fought at the Battle of the Rosebud, which took place in the 1870s. And Pretty Shield describes her as, quote, a crow woman who fought with three stars on the rosebud, a wild one who had no man of her own, which is why I said that as far as I know, she didn't marry a man. That's how Pretty Shield talks about her. And I will mention that Pretty Shield said this in probably the 1920s or 30s. I don't know the exact date. So that's, you know. Sometime later. Sometime later. By the time the other magpie would have either been very old or passed away. And she goes on to say, she was both bad and brave, this one. Her name was the other magpie and she was pretty. She was pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's an important fact. So I guess I wanted to read that quote to give you an idea of who the other magpie is, but also to just note that Pretty Shield refers to the other magpie as a woman Mm -hmm. exclusively without providing any caveats on that in the same way. Like she also refers to Oshtish as a woman in this kind of same paragraph and then provides some caveats going into detail explaining what Oshtish's gender is. Yeah. Yeah. So while I can't make a statement about how Beowichish was understood, I can definitely make a statement that a person doing quite similar things was understood without caveats as a woman. Mm. Just to be a woman who was like, Inhabiting some transgressive social roles, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the last thing I wanted to say on the topic of gender is obviously we don't know how Beowichish may have understood herself, mostly insofar as we don't really know how anyone understands their gender unless they've conveniently told us. I'm going to leave a lot of written documents after I die about how I feel about my gender just to... Isn't that still just going to be very unclear, though? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You're correct. (laughs) Yeah, so we can't know how Beowichish understood herself. The point I wanted to make was that it was definitely possible for someone to fulfill these traditionally masculine roles and be understood as a woman. Conversely, I did want to mention that I don't know if it would be possible for someone assigned female at birth to fulfill masculine social roles and be understood as a man. I was just about to ask that question, so I'm glad you said that. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, we started off by saying, you know, should Beowichish be understood as a kind of complementary gender to Bate? It doesn't seem that that possibility existed. Yeah, That's not, like, a sort of formally defined category. Yeah. But as for what she felt personally about this, we do not know. Yeah. Yeah. So returning to Beowichish's biography. According to Denig, Beowichish continued as a war leader and chief for about 20 years and continued to ride to war into her 40s. In 1851, Crow chiefs Big Shadow and Sits on Edge of Fortification participated in the signing of the Treaty of Fort Laramie. I just realized that I didn't look up how to say Laramie. It's Laramie. Cool. I mean, it's Laramie in like every other context I've ever heard. I don't know specifically about this fort, but the cigarettes are certainly Laramie. Okay, we'll go with that <laughs> So this treaty, among other things, and, you know, I don't have time to go into all the politics and everything, but it laid out the borders of the lands of various nations, including the Crow and Grovant. 
and agreed to peace between all these nations and the United States. And this was a treaty set up by the United States. I see. There's a lot more I could say here, but we don't necessarily have time. The key point for us is that following the signing of the treaty, the Grovant, who had been essentially at war with the Crow for Beowitz's entire life, began to invite various new allies to visit them, generally to, you know, be entertained hospitably and sent away with gifts and so forth. And that included inviting Crow representatives to visit them. So in 1854, Beowitz led a party of four other Crow to take up the Grovant on this invitation. Would she have been remembered as a Grovant person, even though she was, like, taken out when she was 10? When she went back, would they think of her still as one of them in any kind of way? So it is suggested that she went to meet with them because she spoke the Grovant language, so that would have been useful, but it doesn't seem that she would have been understood as a Grovant person. Okay. It seems that she would have been understood as a Crow person. And Denig recalls that many of her friends amongst people like him, white fur traders, tried to dissuade her from going on this diplomatic mission because she was such a renowned warrior against the Grovant and had spent Ew. so much of her life fighting the Grovant okay. that, you know, she wasn't the person to go. Okay. Nevertheless, she did go. Near the Grovant camp, she encountered a party of Grovant people. At first, they welcomed her and talked with her and they began to travel together to the Grovant camp. But when they realized exactly who she was, and I mentioned she was, you know, quite known for fighting against the Grovant, they turned against her, killing her and the four other Crow people she was with. So that's where we leave Beowitz's life. I do want to talk a little bit more about one more thing about how she's been talked about since her death. So in around 1854, a man named James, or more commonly known as Jim Beckworth, narrated his life story to a journalist called Thomas D. Bonner. And in 1856, these memoirs were published under the title The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians. Was he? That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) So Beckworth's memoirs are generally understood to be a mix of fact, exaggeration, and fiction. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, he My described- favorite type of memoir. <laughs> like Denig, he worked as a fur trader and therefore he spent time living among the Crow people and he describes himself as becoming their highest ranking chief during that time. I couldn't come across any Crow accounts of him. I didn't we have a like long list of all the Crow chiefs that you told us about before? Little Big Hong yeah. College Library does have a list of Crow chiefs. You know, I don't think it's 100% complete. complete, but Beckworth isn't on there. Okay. And from, you know, reading various Crow histories, I didn't come across anything that said, you know, and then this guy who wasn't Crow came in, but we recognized him as one of us and he became a Crow chief. Which seems like the kind of thing you might remember. Yeah. 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 Okay. For a little bit of background on Beckworth, just so you know who this guy is, he came from Virginia. He was born in the late 1790s. As he tells us in his memoirs, his mother was an enslaved black woman and his father was a white slave owner. So Jim was born into slavery, but emancipated by his father when he reached adulthood. And then he went on to work as a fur trapper and trader. Yeah. Other aspects of this biography have been called into question, like the exact identity of his parents and so forth. And people Mm -hmm. have looked at various records and doesn't quite seem to add up. There's a lot to be unpacked about this man. (laughs) But, you know, he was a mixed race man from Virginia who lived with Crow people. So... The part of his memoirs that is of interest to us is his interactions with a crow woman named Barche Ampere or Pine Leaf. Pine Leaf. I guess Pine Needle is what would we say. We don't have have Pine Leaves. (laughs) No, he calls her Pine Leaf or Barche Ampere. But yeah, you're right. You would say Pine Needle. (laughs) All right, carry on, carry on. Anyway, so several people have drawn parallels between Beckworth's account of the life of Barchampe and Denig's account of the life of Beowachechish. And the highlighting of these parallels begins, as far as I can tell, with our friend Will Roscoe writing in 1988 in a book called Living the Spirit, a Gay American Indian Anthology. Is Will a straight man? No, he was a gay man. Okay, okay. He's been, like, very involved with, like, gay activism for a long, long time. Okay. Yeah, you can't just assume everyone you don't like is straight. <laughs> I don't hate I don't, Will. I, don't. <laughs> I learned the other day he actually worked on Harvey, Harvey Milk's, Milk's yeah. campaign. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, interesting. about teachers being allowed to be gay. Yeah. So just to talk a little bit about the comparison between Bache Ampere and Bierwachetisch. First off, we don't know whether Bache Ampere was a real person who existed. Beckworth's account of her is the only account we have. So Beckworth recounts that Bache Ampere began to volunteer for war parties to avenge the death of her twin brother who was killed when she was 12. So straight up, this doesn't align with what Denig tells us about Bioachechish being taken from her Grobont family at age 10. Mm-hmm. And so Beckworth talks a lot about Bacheampe's involvement in war parties and various things. And then he also explains that Bacheampe remained unmarried. And the reason that she didn't marry was that she had vowed to kill a hundred enemies to avenge her brother's death before marrying. Once again, worth mentioning that Denig does not mention such a vow, if such a vow existed. So what are the parallels? Literally just that she went to war? Yes, that's it. That's the parallel. All right. (laughs) You have jumped to the conclusion of my account. You can pretend it didn't happen if you want. But I will finish my account of Bacheampe from Beckworth's perspective. So in Beckworth's account, he himself asks Bacheampe to marry him. And she turns him down because of her vow. Convenient. (laughs) Well, once she has killed 100 enemies and completed her vow. However, she does agree to marry Beckworth, announcing that, quote, this day I become your wife. Bache Ampe is a warrior no more. Mm, Yeah. And obviously, conversely, Denning tells us that Beowichetish continued to participate in war right up basically until her death. And did not marry any men. Yes. (laughs) And So, no offense to your research, but why is Bache Ampe relevant? If she may not exist and does not seem similar... (laughs) Well, the reason that she's relevant is Will Roscoe drew this parallel in the 80s. Since then, their stories have, I would say not necessarily in scholarship, but in just kind of random articles have become conflated. So you'll see things like, you know, Bioa Chechish, meaning woman chief, who was born Bache Ampe, and like, you know. Oh, yeah, I see. That kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. You're just, it's like you're you're debunking a myth that I have not encountered. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, No, that fully makes sense. (laughs) Their stories have become conflated a little bit. Not hugely, but like, you know, they have become conflated. And I think I also wanted to mention the fact that Roscoe has kind of conflated them. Well, let me go back and talk about how Roscoe talks about Bacheampe. So the first thing I want to mention is Beckworth finishes his story of Bacheampe by explaining that she eventually agreed to marry him. She laid down her weapons. They got married. But then he eventually decides to stop living among Crow people, returns to living in American cities, and leaves her behind. And Will Roscoe, in his account, doesn't include this part of the story. He ends at the point where Bacheampe rejects Beckworth's offer of marriage. Yeah. I don't know why Roscoe decided to do this, but it does seem to me an odd choice when that's, I would say, the most obvious deviation of their stories. Like, Beowa Chechish, we're told by Denig, did not marry a man, married four women, and continued yeah. to be a warrior for the rest of her life. Bacheampe marries a man and steps back from that part of her life. And Roscoe just cuts that. <clears throat> and then Roscoe finishes his account of Bacheampe by saying, even if Pineleaf's story was fictionalized, it's remarkably similar to that of Woman Chief, which if he hadn't stopped the story halfway through, it just would. isn't true. Yeah. <laughs> what an odd thing to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I guess if you assume that a woman warrior is so overwhelmingly remarkable that this overshadows every other fact about their Mm. life. They are alike. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, a key point here is that the similarity is that they're both woman warriors and conflating them comes from assuming that no other crow woman ever did that. But you even specifically mentioned to us that, like, at least a couple others did, right? Yeah, and, like, we know that other crow women did do that. Yeah. So I'm a bit disappointed in Roscoe in this moment. <laughs> well, <laughs> Would yeah, you say used to that, Alice? He's a I'm scholarly sorry. mixed bag. <laughs> he is a scholarly mixed bag. He's the scholarly mixed bag. <laughs> I hope that he listens to this and puts that in his Twitter bio. <laughs> Oh, that'd be so awkward. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do with myself then. <laughs> no, right. Yeah, so one of the other reasons I wanted to discuss Bache Ampe is because following the publication of Living the Spirit in 1988, so that's the book in which Roscoe provides this account where he kind of talks about them as though maybe they're the same people. In around 1989 or 1990, a group was founded in New York named Weiwei and Bache Ampe, 
which brought together queer or two-spirit Indigenous people to share information, work on safe sex and HIV education, and combat cultural appropriation, especially with regard to Native religious beliefs. Mm. Okay. Incidentally, if you want to know more about Weewa, who is the other half of that group's name, they were a Zuni craftsperson and ambassador, and a Lamana, which is a Zuni gender, describing people assigned male at birth who performed feminine social roles. And we do have a whole episode on them, if you want to hear about that. So one of the founding members of the group, San Carlos Apache man Curtis Harris Davia, explicitly references Roscoe's work in explaining the name of the group, saying, We came up with the two names out of a book I think many of us had read called Living the Spirit. And there were two people, two characters or ancestors, who were written about in the book. A part of the original scope of what we were trying to do was give some focus to the fact that we had a historical tradition in the communities and that it wasn't something we were just thinking about because it was new and exciting. Just as gay and lesbian people use Eleanor Roosevelt or Gertrude Stein or any of those people as historical markers for the general community, we use Wewa and Bache Ampe as markers for our community. Very interesting choices of Gertrude Stein and Eleanor Roosevelt there. Yeah. Like, you know, like yeah. fair enough, but I, I don't know, that would be my go-to. I feel like Oscar Wilde is one I would expect to see in that list. But I guess they are American as well. They are American, mm. yeah. And those are both American examples. Does Will Roscoe really present Bachampe as a queer figure in that book? Well, it's interesting because he doesn't actually talk about her marrying women. Isn't Bachampe the one that doesn't exist? Yeah. Yeah. I think he mentions Beowachish's marrying women. I'm not 100% sure. I guess Bachampe can be seen as, you know... Taking on some masculine roles and therefore... Yeah. Yeah, so queer with regard to gender rather than sexuality. Yeah, but that's what I meant. Does Will Roscoe present her as a queer... I guess Will Roscoe ended the story before she got married. Yeah, and Will Roscoe just kind of recounts what Beckworth says about Barchampe. He doesn't really, in this book, go into any kind of analysis. Mm, This book is kind of just like, here's some accounts of some Native American people who are doing some stuff about gender and sexuality. Yeah, okay. So he doesn't really delve in and say, what was her gender... Did she marry a woman? What did that mean? Yeah. He's just kind of like, here's a story. And Curtis Harris Darvia and the people he was working with were obviously like, you know, that story resonates with us. We're going to name our group after this person. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I did want to finish with that quote because I think that, you know, perhaps regardless of whether Bachampe is real or not, Curtis Harris Darvia's point that, you know, white people, and in this case, white Americans have a lot of figures to turn to. And he didn't feel like he did, I think, is an important one when yeah. talking about this kind of history. And I think that's important to keep in mind when we're doing a podcast like this. And I think it's something that we try to keep in mind, that we want to talk about people from as many cultures and as many parts of the world as we can and cover things like Indigenous American history. So we're not just turning to those figures that are already reasonably well known and so that our queer figures that people have to identify with don't become these exclusively Mm. white, generally American mm. figures. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our episodes on Podbean, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you do find us on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and a review, because that helps us to reach a wider audience. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. And if you want to support us financially, you can head over to our Patreon and sign up as a patron, and you can get a variety of perks, including some bonus content, our regular Queer as Fact newsletter where we talk about upcoming projects we're working on and, you know, anything else that's going on in our lives. And you also get some free merchandise. If you want to get our merchandise otherwise, you can find us on Redbubble. We're Queer as Fact on all those platforms, but if you want to find all that information in one place, you can go to our website, which is queerasfact.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.